Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. This is Dick Drobnik, the director of the iBear program uh, in Jakarta, talking with a longtime friend, uh, Jim Castle. Uh, Jim, welcome to the iBear program's business class podcast. Uh, tell us a bit about your career in Indonesia, and then uh, I'll ask you some questions about the business environment and the economy of Indonesia. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Dick. It's always a pleasure to uh, meet with my old friends from iBear and the, the great program that iBear has had over the years. Um, yeah, I'm kind of an accidental businessman, I guess. I uh, first came to Asia as a Peace Corps volunteer and then thought I wanted to be an academic, so I went on for graduate degrees at the East-West Center and at Cornell and came here as an exchange student in 72 with East-West Center and then came back as a Fulbright Scholar in 77 doing dissertation research in history. And at the end of that first year, I basically dropped out and went to work. I decided I wanted to stay here and I liked Indonesia more than I liked history. All but dissertation. ABD, all but dissertation. And um, to support myself, I became a freelance journalist. In the course of that, I did a lot of uh, business writing about business, interviewing business people and so on. And being a child of the 60s, I was anti-war, anti-government, anti-business. So it was quite an education for me. And I found out that I really liked the business people I interviewed. I thought they were really, uh, I was was working mostly multinationals, foreign business people at that time. And I didn't know many local business people. I knew local academics, but not local business people. But I really thought that these, these people that I interviewed were really oper- operating in real time. They had to make decisions on limited information. They didn't have years to do research. They had to make a decision by Monday morning and with the best data at hand. And that's, you know, on labor conditions, on market conditions and so on. I really found a lot of the people I really enjoyed talking to and learned a lot by talking to them. And I also learned what businesses wanted to know and needed to know. And that gave me the idea to become a consultant and advisor because whatever, what skills I had, I had really two skills that were relevant. I was a trained researcher and I spoke Indonesian. So that was really uh, the way I started. And that, that was a great business up until the financial crisis in 97. And uh, uh, then uh, 97, 98, in, uh, the consulting business basically blew up then, and in '99 I didn't have one serious request for proposal. Uh, a couple of can you get hundred dollars to get us this data, stuff like that, but no real project. Sure. So uh, you know I I went from a staff well, and, of fifty. And, and, and USC didn't get any more Indonesian students. We went from two hundred uh, down to twenty. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Exactly. Uh, everybody pulled in their horns. Obviously, it was a very difficult time. I don't want to minimize how difficult it was. And survival was the name of the game. And so I went from 55 people over two years to 15. Wow. And basically closed, in about 2002 or three. I closed the research uh, section. And I'd always had this thing I call the Indonesia Country Program. It was basically a report and meeting pro- program that I set up again, mostly for multinationals, a few local companies, but mostly multinationals, just to help them understand the way around Indonesia. And I decided that had been kind of a stepchild. I saw it more as a a promotional thing to keep me in front of my clients so they wouldn't forget us when they had research and consulting needs. 
because I was competing with the big boy, the you know the McKinsey's, the Price Waterhouses, EY, all these companies were competitors, and I was just small fry. So I had to find a way to keep myself in front of the company. So I thought, well, I make a little money. It's not not a bad program, but the real purpose is to show people how good we are. You know, show our stuff, get a chance. So I decided then to make that the full, the, the real business. What, what, what's the current feeling of some of your clients? Do they feel optimistic about their business opportunities in, in Indonesia over the next few years? Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're reasonably optimistic. Of course, the last couple of years have been difficult years. Uh, last year was, a, you know, the uh, growth has dropped from 6.4% to 5%. Last year it kind of it flattened out. I think we're going to start curving back up, and I think especially the last quarter last year, I, I sensed a better sentiment. Well, so, we, we have a new administration in Washington, and uh -huh. President Trump is talking about changing all the rules uh -huh. and uh, perhaps disengaging from, multi well, dis certainly disengaging from multilateral uh, arrangements and agreements, starting with TPP and then going after NAFTA and all that. How, how do you uh, see the uncertain future, the uncertain U.S. policy uh, affecting bis American businesses in Indonesia and more broadly affecting the Indonesian economy? In the, well, the Indonesian economy, not much. Not much. Uh, Indo I mean, as the Asian financial crisis, I mean, as a global financial crisis hurt Indonesia less than other countries because we're not seriously plugged into the global supply chain. Therefore, we, we respond to commodity prices more than the supply chain. So that's, that's, we're still there for better or for worse. And that's changing only slowly. So I don't see that for American companies, or for America, well, in my view, uh, TPP, uh, there are flaws in NAFTA that uh, can be improved. And they were improved, actually, from an American point of view, in TPP with more concern with labor rights and things like that in TPP, stronger, I believe, than in NAFTA. So not having TPP implemented, I believe, is a, a, a huge strategic error. It's basically surrendering the market to the Chinese. They already have the Asia Infrastructure Bank. Now we're going to have the RECEP, Regional uh, uh, economic cooperation, whatever, I forget what ours is. China, China's version of It's TPP. China's versions of TPP. It's not going to have the same protections for labor. It's not going to have the same access to government contracting. It's not going to have the same protection for intellectual property. And therefore, all these things that America needs to continue to compete. So, uh, this is a huge blunder, in my view, a huge blunder, and will accelerate the rise of China in the region and the uh, restrict the growth of American companies. They'll still be important. We have great companies. They're very competitive in B2B, B2C, business to business, business to consumer. American companies do very well here. Do very well. All the big names are here. But it is a market for big names. Indonesia is a high cost economy, high regulatory compliance cost, and therefore, and uh, high cost of market entry because it's so complex and so long. Therefore, small and medium companies really don't have the resources. The big, the big companies do. They, they do very well here in Indonesia, and, and, and those that aren't here want to be here, and they'll still figure out a way. Uh, so I, I see America as being very important here, but much uh, not, the, not the big biggest player on the block, and again, not providing the most money and support for infrastructure. 
and money talks and that other thing walks, you know. Uh, Jim, let me, let me ask you a question about, about China, just to curious me again. China came out of self-imposed 40 years of 30 years of isolation with, with Deng. Or five centuries, depending on how you want to look yeah. at it, yeah. And, and uh, Indonesia is part of China's backyard and as uh, a productive, uh, dynamic country. China's going to have more dominance here. But what if President Trump, the administration, initiates a trade war with China? So there's all this talk about slapping on 20% tariffs or 30% tariffs. Mm -hmm. China's too big to take this line down. Mm -hmm. In my yeah. view, China will respond in some way. And it, it could be counter tariffs or it could be we're going to start selling our trillion dollars of uh, U.S. government treasuries. And, and driving the dollar down and interest rates up and so on and so forth. Is there something that the administration might do that will so hurt China that China's dominance in or growing dominance in Asia declines? No. No. They would only redouble their efforts in this part of the world, wouldn't it? I mean, if you lose one market, you go to other markets. I mean, let's just, I mean, God forbid that happens, I and mean, that would be a tragedy. It would hurt the global economy, it would hurt everybody, hurt America. Uh, but the world goes round, so if you lose one market, you concentrate on other markets. Now, um, I, I don't see any other, I just don't see any, any, any other way to look at it. Obviously, there'd be some short-term benefit to the region as some, the jobs wouldn't come back. I mean, the president of the U.S. is responding to a 30-year-old view of world trade, which was only partially right then, and is completely wrong now. It just—it's just the guy is looking in the rearview mirror. I'm sorry. Um, so it's the jobs. If the jobs leave China, because the market, they won't come back to the U.S. They're Vietnam, Bangladesh, and to a certain extent Indonesia. That's where they'll go. And if Trump wants to fight with those people too, then we're looking at uh, inflation in the U.S. We're looking at this or that, the other thing. Um, on selling U.S. I mean, U.S. China's already sold down U.S. Treasuries. They're no longer the biggest buyer. They may be the biggest holder, but Japan is about the same again. And well, so they're, they're trying to maintain the value of the RMB. Well, well, again, this, which, is, this is why, to the extent. China was a currency manipulator and kept their currency artificially weak. Now they're trying to keep it artificially strong. So again, uh, a day late and a dollar short from the current policy view in Washington. It's just, it just again, it's not fact-based. And uh, again, TPP will prove to be an historic blunder, in my view, a historic blunder. Um, so there you are, in my view of the region. And I mean, it's again, it's. The, the, the difficult thing, having, having lived overseas for so long and been, a, you know, initially I was a historian, so I, I do look at the past and look at the way things change over time and have changed in the past. And, you know, I mean, when China and India become $20,000 per capita economies, they're the market. The biggest markets make the rules. They make the rules. This will be how it's played. We have the best technology, the smartest technology, and it comes a lot of it comes from people we import. Uh, but we're all, but that's because they can excel in America, 
we have the facilities and the systems and the companies and, and that where smart people can excel. They want to be there. And that will happen unless we stop it ourselves, commit economic suicide. This will continue uh, for a long time to come. The momentum is tremendous. It, so even more so than the UK, because they didn't have the same technological edge when they became when they became a secondary power to the U.S. that we have. So we're going to have the momentum as long as we can maintain political stability and reasonable fiscal policies for a hundred years. And it doesn't matter if the Chinese economy, in my view, is four times bigger than ours, or the Indian economy is four times bigger. We can still be a key player and we'll still be a very prosperous country. Our per capita income should be much higher than theirs. So, but we have to adjust. We will not be making the rules. That'll be very hard for it's a very hard adjustment. to say it's not our game. And, and history shows us that when the rise of a new power comes, it's rarely peaceful. And let's hope that the U.S. and China can find an accommodation, and that's why integration through trade and business is so important. So we don't go crazy on emotional issues, and if there's somebody makes a huge mistake in the South China Sea, for example, uh, people can just sit down and talk about it instead of start shooting each other. Because again, I think uh, I was just in Myanmar, sorry, and um, as a, my historian historian hat came on. And it really is behind most of the big Asian capitals and the Asian capitals today. And reflect that in 1950, it was the greatest city, maybe between the Middle East and Shanghai. And now Yangon is really a third world city, just struggling to catch up with its neighbors, let alone the rest of the world. Things can turn south. We can't take the prosperity that we have in Southeast Asia and in Jakarta. We can't take the prosperity we have in Japan, and we can't take the prosperity and the peace that we have in the U.S. for granted. These things are more and more fragile as time goes on. We're going through a period of great change. There are, uh, and this whole thing, the growth of right-wing religions in every country, right-wing religious movements in Islam, in Hinduism, in Christianity, in Europe, in the U.S., and so on. These things are natural responses to rapid change. And unless the elite and the leadership can communicate better what the changes are, what the real causes of problems are, what the real effects of things are, there is going to be, we're headed in a dangerous direction right now. Well, I, I so think that we, as you, a businessman, should, you should come back as a businessman and get involved in American politics and lead to a new enlightenment. New enlightenment, yeah. I think uh, I, I, the world is changing and it is, we really, we need more communication. People don't understand here or there what's going on. And that's, that's really, it's a complex, fast-moving world. Change is frightening. Uh, people cling to older beliefs then. They, they cling to the conservative beliefs. Uh, in every country, we see it in every country. It can't be a coincidence. Well, this, so. this is what the the IBEAR MBA program tries to uh, overcome. We we try by having mid-career executives from around the Pacific Rim studying together, developing both professional uh, relationships and, and personal friendships, 
and we hope that our alumni, when they come back to Indonesia and China and Japan, will help to educate some of their colleagues. Well, and I'm a consultant, so I would say I hope the program will focus more on the, you know, on how to deal with government regulation in the sense of how can we make sure growth and success is more inclusive, which is not normally part of a business program. Good uh, maybe, point. maybe. So let's let's. Part of the program should be, why is the world like it is today? It's a hostile environment for globalization. Why, and what can we as business people? What should we as business people do about that? Because it's everybody's responsibility, and I think we all have a lot to answer for over the past few years. Things we haven't paid attention to, or that we must pay more attention to. Jim, that's a great point to close on. You've been very generous with your time. I've enjoyed seeing you again and seeing you every year when I come out here. Look forward to you coming back to USC and giving some of your wisdom to our students. But building into the business curriculum something about the government relations, social compacts would be very important to do. Thank you very much. You're most welcome, Dick. Always a pleasure to be involved with a great iBear program. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. <laughs>